Hello and welcome to Media Research's post-pandemic programming podcast. This is episode one of uh, this first season of shows that we've made. Uh, We're going to be talking about those shows and why you should tune in in this conversation. I'm Keith Jopling, Director of Consulting with Media Research, and I'm here with Mark Mulligan. Do you want to introduce yourself, Mark? Hey there, Keith. I'm uh, MD here of Media Research, long-time music, media and tech analyst. Good morning. What what a beautiful thing you've created with with uh, with media. Great to be part of this team. So we um, had this idea that we would make a season of podcasts about the post pandemic programming. We've called it because I mean, so much of our our businesses are are, are involved in programming as strategy operations, etc. How they sort of come back up to speed from this situation we're in, but. This conversation, as we're having it, is we, we are kind of deep into the second wave of COVID nineteen. And you were telling me, you've told me a few times, I think, that the Spanish flu had four waves. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, and the, and the fourth one was the uh, the most deadly of the lot. Yeah. So where I want to sort of start, uh, we're, we're going to talk about the the programs. I'll mention, you know, for for listeners, what we're going to be talking about, so they can tune in. But what I want to start is, I mean, we don't even know, do we, if we're even halfway through this. So at this stage, what do you think that means for some of the businesses that we've been we've been working with? Let's just have a quick discussion about that before we get into the details. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the only bit of certainty you can take out of it is the certainty of uncertainty. And, mm. um, you know, we, we just don't know. You know, not even the you know, the expert epidemiologists know whether this is going to be the last wave, whether it's going to be successive waves. I mean, even in the US, they're saying it's a continuation of the first wave. So, you know, we're clearly media. We're not epidemiologists. And we're never going to pretend to be able to 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 be so. So, really, what we're focusing on is trying to come up with a, a set of frameworks to help entertainment companies plan for possibilities and understand where vulnerabilities are understand where opportunities are and essentially just give them a different toolkit of options and strategies for navigating what are incredibly unpredictable times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, how much innovation we've seen flooding in, which is a good thing. And there's there's many, many benefits, I think, that will come out the other, other side to this, but there's so much collateral damage as well. So probably the, the biggest one is, is sort of the, any cultural industry, or in fact, you could widen it to any industry, which involves real experiences with, with people en masse. So live music for a start. I, I sense just in the last few weeks that there is slightly a loss of hope now i know that's come in the uk with with things like the um, cultural recovery fund you know reaching uh, venues and cultural institutions and so on but what are they going to do with that investment of funds how should let's start with with live music we may as well start with one of the hardest hit industries if you're a venue how do you use the money that you've been given or the money you've got left or invest the money to change your business to be fit for purpose for the ongoing situation because let's face it i mean we had you know we we know that 2020 is cancelled story is 2021 might be largely cancelled from a point of view of sort of uh, sizable live shows 
What should they do with that investment? How should they be thinking? Well, fortunately, there is no easy answer. There is no silver bullet. There is no complete solution. It's going to be tough. So it's about minimising the um, the severity of it all. I mean, there's this horrible management consultant phrase, but it does ring true a bit. Back at the turn of the last century, the um, when you know so the, the railways started to lose out to uh, to cars, well, a bit later in the turn of the century, um, what the, the problem that the railway companies had was thinking they were in the railway business when they were actually in the transportation business. It's about thinking how you compete laterally, how you move laterally. So, you know, really, maybe it's a case of live venues need to realise that they're not in the live business, they're in the performance business. And it's about once you understand what are your transferable skills and assets and competencies, you know, you as a venue or a promoter, you know, whichever part of the music value chain you're in in live, it's about bringing audiences and artists together. It's about putting together a really high quality experience packaging it in a certain way, producing it in a certain way, monetizing it in a certain way. And, and what we've seen with the rise of digital for the last 20 years is that a huge number of offline businesses that existed for decades or centuries before have been able to migrate into digital environments. Live has been almost like a sort of an oddity in that it hasn't. So I think that's probably it. It's a case of you know, thinking about what the things that you can do to go and make the essence of what um, you used to do, work in a digital environment, and, you know, a really simple way of saying, well, of course, it's live streaming, but it's a lot more than that. It's live streaming is simply a technology to let you do those other things. You're right. I mean, there's horrible management consultancy connotations about it, but it's times like this, I suppose, where businesses step back and they say, okay, what business are we in? As in, what's the outcome we deliver? What's, what's our purpose? And actually, you know, most of the time, I think what consultancies are trying to do, or maybe sometimes what boards are trying to do is disrupt themselves. And we had this sort of wave of conversation, you know, things come in trends, you know, management sort of comes in trends and disruption was was the watchword for so many years. I, I think it's gone because it's we've just, we've just had the, the biggest disruption we could ever have. So I think it's about using it as a catalyst, isn't it, to quickly... Um, you, you know, not have a philosophical conversation about what business are we in, but actually to understand it really, really quickly and then figure out how you move along that value chain. So I think that's something that is going to be interesting for us in our business with the clients we work with is just, okay, where are you on the value chain? So if you were a venue, you fulfilled a specific role in the live business industry that has this number of silos. And then as you say, you know, you've got new players come in and and, you know, we've written about some of these players like Maestro and Drift and so on. I think what they've done, so Drift, I mean, is, is a good example. They've gone in for sort of higher end live productions, you know, live productions that are, that are, that are live streamed from venues, um, but staging the, the performance differently, um, having a different narrative. I mean, the Biffy Clyro thing was interesting. That was a kind of an album launch. Um, they did it in sort of several productions within one venue, the Barrowlands and, and Glasgow, and they did Laura Marling at Union Chapel and, and so on. And these things are, are different, aren't they, to your classic live performance? And I guess they have to be. I mean, they will continue once we come out of this pandemic. So in, in live, we've got a new business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, without wanting to spend too much time on live now, I think the last bit I'd say is we're at a stage of creating a new format. 
you know, and in many ways, it's not even a new live format. It's a new video format. And if we can create a new video format, then it could be to live music what TV is to sports, you know, massively expanding the reach of the actual venue, turning it into a much bigger global business with a huge amount of licensing revenue and things around it. Now, that reality is not going to suddenly happen tomorrow, but we can lay the foundations for it now. And maybe the last bit I was going to say on this is when we look at, say, the incumbents versus the insurgents, so the insurgents of all of these new startups which are coming up, and you know, there's a huge amount of variation in the quality of those and the competencies. The incumbents, so, you know, the live music venues, the promoters, etc., they've got decades of understanding how to make l- music performances work, you know, in understanding what works, which audience goes where, lighting, sound, stage, you know, all of these sort of things. That gives them a huge head start in being able to deliver truly compelling, high-quality, video-centric experiences you know i think you know if they can think that way then they've got an opportunity to actually get ahead of some of these increasingly well-funded new live streaming startups or if not that then meld the two together you know and those live streaming companies should be looking to venues to bring in in all of those competencies yeah so that's one example we've we've made this series on um uh, almost along the sort of core core elements of of where we work so we've got we're just introducing the series here but we've got four further shows and they're centered around a a webinar that we're doing on november the 10th as well which is on this topic of post-pandemic programming so we've got um i mean they're numbered programs it doesn't really matter you can listen to them in any order but in in program two we've got carol and hannah talking about the advertising business and then we've got um carol our, our games analyst with Alistair, our our sports guru, talking about games and sport. And then you and I get together, Mark, with Tim to talk about subscriptions business. And then I've um, got together with Hannah and David Freer, who works with us on design projects, to talk about the kind of broader potential longer-term impact on how we, um, how we as consumers interact with culture. Which, which was really, really fascinating. So it's kind of, you know, the longer that this goes on, the more we get used to different lifestyles and habits and, yep. and reevaluate what, what, uh, how we want to spend our quality time. So if we just quickly run through some of those and, and, you know, we can just have literally a couple of minutes between us on each. Advertising is probably a good place to start. I mean, traditionally ads get slammed during, during recession times and we're not going to come out of this without a recession that's arguably that's already really kicked in but then again a lot of advertising is digital a lot of people are spending more time looking at screens and hanging out there what's going to happen with advertising generally do you think over the next couple of years I think it's going to be a mixed story. Um, as so much of this sort of measuring the impact of the pandemic and then overlaying that with the impact of the recession, there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. So you look at the, the Q2 2020 results for Alphabet, you know, one of the world's biggest advertising companies, lost a few points of revenue, so it was down. But Amazon's ad business was up. And if you think about that, if, you know, if you're an advertiser in times of uncertainty, if you're not looking at cutting back your budget, you are certainly looking for wanting to make your budget work for you. And when we've got this unique thing about you know, many markets going into lockdown, so people aren't in the cars and not seeing out-of-door advertising, 
you know, and, you know, they're not in the car, maybe not listening to radio as much and not listening to radio advertising as much. You start looking for all these other places where you can reach customers. And when you think about the value proposition of Amazon, I mean, if you want to sell stuff, then what better place to advertise where somebody's one click away from putting your product into a, into a basket and buying it with that same click? So I think there's, you know, that, that is an example of, I think, where, you know, advertisers may be increasingly looking for really um, measurable return on investment. And in that context, digital advertising, I'm not saying it's going to, you know, weather the storm perfectly, but it will be a lot more resilient than some more traditional formats. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's a tricky time to go all out with advertising your brand. Um, unless, of course, your brand is is playing a central role in this. Right? I've noticed, you know, Apple is, is certainly doing a lot of brand advertising at the moment, where, you know, the emphasis is on being part of creation, um, uh, I suppose, sort of being being a, a, almost a, a, a reassurance that, you know, life goes on and you need the technology to to help you um through it so yeah it, interesting um with subscriptions of course the other major revenue stream that that we work with there's a lot of interesting things going there so when we get together with tim we're talk, we're talking about the sort of idea of peak subscription and you know can people take on more subscriptions but again with a kind of recession hat on i don't want to be too glass half empty um I mean, a lot of new businesses that are sort of emerging, we talked about live before. What's the alternative business model they should be looking at? I mean, what do you think is going to be the growth story with subscriptions? Because it's starting to slow down, right? Or is it? I mean, we can talk about music, we can talk about video. Mm. And there's also news um, and streaming sports and game subscriptions in there as well. Um, Generally speaking, during lockdown, um, many subscriptions, digital subscriptions were pretty resilient. In fact, a lot of them grew really well. News was a really interesting one. There was an absolute surge in the number of digital news subscriptions, which sort of makes sense, right? Because it's not only is it the pandemic and people, you know, really wanted to keep up to date with everything that's going on. It's also an incredibly important time politically, um, you know, with a huge amount of, sort of like tribalism emerging in politics. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of digital news subscriptions have been about people buying into someone, you know, buying into a news outlet that essentially validates their worldview. Uh, you know, games did really well throughout the period, um, you know, and that was reflected in some good subscription numbers growth. Uh, and, and, you know, Netflix had really good quarters, uh, Spotify did. It's going into the recession where things get a little bit more interesting. And, you know, we've we've done quite a lot of research and media and, you know, asking consumers about how they expect things to change if a recession happens, what they want to do after lockdown. Um, and there definitely is, I mean, we go into it in more detail in that episode, but there is definitely a significant amount of risk of increased churn when more people disappear out of the job market. And the last bit on this is... The people most vulnerable in the job market in early stages of recession are younger people. And millennials, particularly within music subscriptions, are an absolutely core constituent of the subscriber base. So they're going to be very vulnerable. And maybe it's going to be the likes of Apple One and Amazon Prime, these sort of value-for-money multi-genre bundles. They might be the ones which are actually looking you know, most well-placed to weather a, uh, a recessionary storm. Yeah, I think that's going to be really interesting. I think looking at behaviors that we haven't really seen uh, prominent in the subscription 
business so far. So, you know, the idea of just pruning down your subscriptions, for example, if you've got three or four, and we, we know that, you know, in the video space, people do have two or three different subscriptions, and then they might have a music one, et cetera, et cetera. Um, switching as well could be interesting. Um, and maybe switching to one of those household driven or family driven or bundle packages that, that you describe. And that's, I think, clearly part of Apple and Amazon's long-term thinking isn't it yeah absolutely and, it, and it's just a really unfortunate time where particularly in music you know there's this real sort of push from rights holders songwriters artists you know to get their stream rates and arpu up and you do that through a whole bunch of things but one one of the key ways is you put prices up and it just hasn't happened in music so far but we start to see spotify experimenting with some some price increases that they announced after the q3 earnings um, we've seen Netflix pushing prices up. The problem is going into a recession, the last thing you want to do in order to try to ensure you get the spend of people who have less money is make them pay more. So it might have to wait a bit. Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem a, a strange time to be to be thinking about a price increase strategy. I mean, and Netflix is rumored to be thinking about another price increase. Now, Netflix has increased its price several times over. Spotify hasn't. I mean, arguably, Spotify has been stuck in a kind of digital deflation scenario. It hasn't increased its prices since it first launched in you know 2008. Um, but I think it probably feels like it has enough original content now to leverage leverage that price increase, which is interesting. Uh, so we can definitely, we I think we get into that in in the subscriptions episode. I want to quickly move on to games and sport. Um, because it's a sort of a tale of two pandemics in a way. I mean, games has just had such a boost and there are kind of new games that just seem to be popping up virally every couple of weeks, right? So the amount of time the audiences have grown, the businesses have grown, it's sort of a boom time for games. On the other hand, sport, not so much, but there's a blend between the two. So I, I know Alistair and Carol have a lot to say about what's going on in those sectors. But overall, what do you think? The longer this carries on, how do you think it will play out in those sectors? Well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Games and sports are like opposite ends of the disruption spectrum for you know sort of the impact of, of the pandemic. Um, but they also could have the mirror image coming out of it as well, right? So sports will be hoping that things can only get better when crowds come back. I mean, there is a big question, will all of the crowds come back, you know, people's behaviors change you know, you know we we could be in this sort of lockdown era for maybe the best part of a year and that you, you can really learn to change your habits that way you know and uh, so some of those habits may be permanently changed for you know for a significant number of live sports attendees um meanwhile games has really benefited from um core gamers as well as casual gamers having more time on their hands not you know doing a commute etc so as much as we're going to have more people based at home in the long term there's still also going to be more people going back to work once you know sort of more offices open and company policies uh, you know loosen up so i think right now games is booming sports is struggling coming out the other side that that balance might sort of counter uh, might shift a little bit and it could be a little bit difficult for some games companies, uh, you know, if they find out that their high watermark that they expected to be higher post lockdown just ends up back to where it was. Yeah, uh, let's just talk about sports because you, you know it, it's um, one of the things that intrigues me about 
post-pandemic, when we even get there, or even maybe between um, between spikes, you know, between the, the the waves, is how audiences come back to things like major sporting events um, and other cultural events as well. So there's been a range of different behaviours in how people have responded to the pandemic. Um, first of all, you know, how they manage risk, how they interpret rules, how they've changed their lifestyle. It seems like, you know, everyone's got a different way of, of coping. Uh, and some people actually, you know, really thrived during during the period. I think the same thing might happen when we start to go back. So, you know, just oversimplifying, but young people will flood back, right, to, to live events and sporting events. But what about people over 50? What about families? Um, it's going to be interesting to see what the patterns are in terms of how people return to, you know, normal life in, in, in their sort of forms of entertainment and how the, how the businesses and brands re- react and, and respond to that. Yeah, I think the demographic bit is really important, you know, and again, we, we can't not talk about the health impact again with the massive caveat, we're no epidemiologists, but, um, you know, it, the, the... You can pronounce epidemiologist, right? Yeah, <laughs> just about. So the, I think the, the growing consensus is that, you know, if a vaccine does come in the meaningful future and it keeps, seems to keep getting passed, you know, pushed back and back, um, it may well end up being a bit like the flu vaccine. You know, it's going to be something that's not like a, you know, vaccination you have when you're a kid and it covers you for life. It's something that might be seasonal. The, you know, the virus itself might mutate. It might not be 100%, uh, have 100% efficacy. So you've got, you know, all of these things which mean that... Right. If we still have the you know the, the the virus in in the environment, people are going to be concerned. Once you get over the age of forty, your you know your risks of complications uh, you know go up you know, incredibly strongly. With you know sort of a, a, every sort of six years or so, you have beyond. Uh, turning 40 and so if you're going to say a sports event or a games event your first one after lockdown and you're thinking well I know they're doing social distancing so I feel a bit relieved there and then you find that okay yeah there's gaps between rows of seats but you're still in a queue for security you're still in a queue for the turnstile you're still in a queue for you know drinks or the toilet and you might come away from that experience thinking that's just too risky for me so I do think that there's yeah you know so you're using public transport and you know with lots of other people. Yeah, absolutely. So you might end up with this sort of 40 plus, 50 plus segment of of those audiences becoming much more reticent about going back to real world environments. Um, Mm. And, you know, you can't underestimate the importance of older people because in the Western world, the shape of our populations is incredibly skewed towards older people because we're living longer and they tend to have a lot of disposable income because maybe paid up the mortgage, you know, have kids at home, whatever it might be. And so they're, they're an incredibly important consumer group for live music, for sports, you know, for, for uh, leisure, for theatre. You know, so I think there's a huge amount that the entertainment industry as a whole is going to need to do to think about how do you cater for older consumers in a post-peak of the pandemic, but when the pandemic is still there as a, as a risk factor. Yeah, I mean, the the more I think about it, and I know that, you know, we're working with several businesses that have kind of come to this um, epiphany that things will be different, that their business will be different, that they need a, a different strategy. I think that probably applies to every business uh, and certainly every, every business in the verticals we're, we're working in, right? Music, video, games, and sport. If companies are thinking that, 
let's just hold out until things return to normal. Chances are they may not even survive, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's that horrible, but sort of quite true phrase, it's adapt or die. I mean, things... And I go back to what I said at the start, you know, the only certainty is uncertainty. So at the very least, even if you think there is a good chance things will return to normal, and you're probably not going to have too many people who will think the same as you, but even if you believe that, the very least you've got to plan for the possibility it may not be. Well, I mean, I don't want to leave it on a (laughs) a dystopian note, but, I mean, in a way, I mean, we've been seeing uh, very much two sides of the equation so we've been seeing a lot of businesses who've who've experienced bigger growth years than than ever and we've experienced a lot of businesses that have been just the opposite they've been absolutely slammed so i think what is interesting to me and we'll we we talk about this in the individual programs where we we get in deeper into it is is just how they review their position in in the business and kind of review their purpose in society and think about strategy differently and think about their audiences differently so for anyone tuning into this uh you know i urge you to tune into the other programs dive into those join us for the webinar november the 10th by the time you're listening to this it may already be out there but you can probably find the recording uh, and get in touch with us. But uh, for now, Mark, been really great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing the the other programs in the series. Yeah, cheers, Keith. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Be sure to keep up with all the latest episodes by subscribing to Media Research on your favourite podcast platform.